Genesis chapter 43. This is the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told them was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land of, in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother, your other brother, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of, of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present. And they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, is it because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make our servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, 
They brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate, who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. And let's pray once more and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you speak. Thank you that you are not silent. And Lord, we need your spirit to be at work. Otherwise, we just hear these words and they float over us. We need your spirit to be at work for us to hear in such a sense that we will be changed by your word. And so we pray to that end this evening. We pray that as we look at this text in Genesis 43, we would leave with a sense that we have met with Jesus and we have heard him speak. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I've found that I struggle more and more being in the passenger seat in a car. I'm not sure why it is. It's not that my wife's a bad driver. That's definitely not the case. It doesn't matter who's driving. She's a very good driver, just in case she's listening in. But everything's different in the passenger seat. Everything. You just seem so much closer to the hedge, okay? Uh, the curbs, well, they seem very, very close. And I find whenever I, I push on the floor where, where, the, where the pedals normally are when I'm driving, it does nothing. <laughs> and uh, it's somewhat disconcerting. And then there's the steering wheel. Well, it moves and I haven't touched it. And I find it all a bit difficult to get used to because normally, normally I'm in the driving seat. I'm used with the view from the driver's seat, and I'm used with that idea of the feeling of being in control. And whenever you feel like you're in control, it's easy to be a bit more content, isn't it? Easy to be a bit more content. And it seems like Jacob and I have something in common. In fact, I imagine there's many of you here, and, and maybe you have that same thing, where you, you like to think that you are in control. Maybe you're here, and you're in your late teens, and you have a plan. By the age of 30, you have certain things that you are going to have ticked off. You know the job that you want. You know the salary that you plan to have. Uh, you've thought through whether you want to be uh, married or single. You maybe have an idea as to which house you're going to buy, or at least the street that you might live on. You've thought through how often you'll visit your parents and all of that. You have all of these plans. Now, you maybe haven't written them down, but you've thought them through, and they're up here, and you think, this, 
This is what is going to happen. Well, Jacob's life hadn't exactly went the way that he may have dreamed. I'm sure this wasn't the way that he would have planned it out to be. You know, Jacob's life, well, you know it, because we've been working through it, haven't we? What happens? Well, he, he tricked his father into giving him the blessing rather than his brother Esau, and ever since then, family relationships have been a little bit tricky, hadn't they? A little bit tricky. And then there was the father-in-law who scammed him, giving him the wrong bride, and then making him work a further seven years for the hand of his second daughter. And the whole two wives thing, well, that turned out to be a bit of a disaster, didn't it? A bit of a disaster, and let that be a warning to us all. There is no end of jealousy and envy and strife. And then there was the death of his favorite wife, Rachel, after the childbirth of their second son, and the suspected wild animal attack on his son Joseph that had not left even a bone that could be buried to help them in their grief. I'm sure, as he was a teenager, in the tent with his mum, these were not the dreams that he had. These were not the dreams that he had. They were not the plans that he would have made. And here, once again, Jacob finds himself in a situation that he would not have chosen. Verse 1, the famine was severe in the land. The famine was severe in the land. And yet it was another reminder to Jacob that he was not in control. He wasn't in control. No matter how many times he tries to hit the bricks, metaphorically speaking, things did not stop and the course did not turn. Wonder do you know that this evening? You're not in control. You are not in control. Because if you're like me, well then sometimes we can kind of fall into this false sense of being in control. We can go through life thinking like we are in control, acting as if we're in control making all of our plans for the future as if it's all down to us. And that is a foolish way to live. A foolish way to live. If you're here next Sunday morning, well, then you will hear James say this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It seems like God's people throughout the ages have constantly needed this reminder, constantly needed this reminder that they are not in control and that God is the one who is in control. And it seems as we read through Genesis that it's something that we are reminded of again and again and again. How many times have we mentioned this? God is the one who is in control. Think of the promises that were made to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob. And despite all that's happened, all the mess that's happened throughout this family, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God has worked to bring about his promises. They are still on track, aren't they? God has worked to bring about his promises. Promises, and we have seen God's providential hand weaving everything that's happened the whole way through Genesis thus far. Governing, God governing the way that the leaf and the blade, the rain and the drought, the fruitful and the barren years, the food and the drink, 
the health and sickness, the riches and poverty, indeed that all things have come from his fatherly hand, not by chance. In all of the circumstances that we see in chapter 43, it is another reminder that God is the one who is in control. And to think that we are in control is foolishness. It's foolishness. It's arrogant and it's evil. But it's not just that God's in control. That's not all we see here. We see that God is in control, but God leads his people into the trials in which he works to bring about their sanctification. We notice that once again in this chapter, don't we? And just look at how this uh, chapter shows us this. The famine was severe in the land, okay? They've now eaten through all of the food that they got from Egypt the last time that they were there. And Jacob is forced into making some sort of a move at this point. It's decision time. It's crunch time. There's no food left in the cupboard. Something has to happen. And so he says to his sons once again, you must go to Egypt. You must go to Egypt and you must buy some more food. But Judah, who seems to step in and take the lead at this point, after Reuben's rejection earlier, he says that the man who we know is Joseph had solemnly warned them saying, you shall not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Dad, if you send Benjamin, then we will go. But if you will not send him, then we will not go. And it's at this point that we see a little glimpse again of the old Jacob, the fleshly Jacob, the man who throughout his life has been so consumed by himself and his own desires. Listen to what he says. I wonder, did you spot it? Why did you treat me so badly? Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Jacob's obsessed, isn't he? He's obsessed with himself and how he feels. Why did you treat me so badly? Me, your father, why did you treat me so badly? As if, as if when their brothers were being questioned by this governor in Egypt, that the brothers answered it in such a way that they said that they had a brother purely just to spite their father, as if this was their intention. Look back up at uh, chapter 42, verse 36, we see again this man who's obsessed with himself. Verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He's a man who's obsessed with me, me, me. He's just inwardly focused, isn't he? Always thinking about himself. But what about the sons themselves? What about them? He doesn't seem to give much regard to them. What was it like for the rest of their family? Well, he doesn't seem to care much for them either. Jacob is a man who who is self-absorbed. And if we're honest, we would say this is not a pretty sight, is it? Someone who's focused only on themselves is not a pretty sight. And change is needed. And although Jacob holds tightly to Benjamin, trying to keep control in order to determine his safety of his favored son, God is going to work to to release his grip, isn't he? That's what's happening. God is releasing his grip. But before we see that, let's look at Judah. Because here too is a man who who is evidence of God at work. God at work changing his heart. Look at what Judah says in verse 8. He says, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. 
from my hands you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and sit him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, what do you know of this man Judas so far in this story? Conjure up in your minds what you, you know of this man so far. Wasn't he the very brother who came up with a plan to sell Joseph in the first place? And then there was that whole chapter about Judah and Tamar, and let's be honest, nobody wants me to reread that chapter this evening, do you? Up until now, this has been a man who serves his own interest, isn't it? He's a man who's been all about his own interest. A bit like his father. And here we notice a change, don't we? Because Judah is concerned, not just for himself, but he's concerned for the whole family. In fact, he's willing to lay down his life for them, isn't he? And then look at verse 9. I will be a pledge of his safety. There's a real contrast here because when was the last time a pledge was mentioned in the story of Judah? Well, it's back in chapter 38, isn't it? Isn't that what Tamar had asked for? Give me a pledge. Give me a pledge. And that was a time when it was all about satisfying his own fleshly desire. And so here we see a contrast. We see a man who seems to be acting differently. Well, Jacob is running out of options, isn't he? The food is running out. The famine is severe. And so with empty cupboards once more and the persuasion of his son Judah, he finally agrees that Benjamin can go with them to Egypt. And so what does he do? Well, in order to appease the gruff-speaking Egyptian governor... They take with them a whole host of gifts. You see the list of gifts that they bring, such as gum and bam and myrrh. And it's interesting. It's interesting that this is actually the very things that the caravan of Ishmaelites, the traders who Joseph was sold to back in chapter 37, this is the very things that they were carrying down to Egypt. But as Jacob is forced to loosen the grip on his son Benjamin, the son who had become an idol, as we pointed out last week, the one whom he had said without whom his life was not worth living, well, we see Jacob's lips remind him of the one true God, the one who had declared himself to be the God of Jacob. Verse 14, may God Almighty, God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send you back your brother, and Benjamin. In the circumstances that God had brought about, remember God's the one who's in control, this particular trial that Jacob had been brought into, well, God uses it to turn his eyes once again to look at him. Once again to look at him, the one true and living God, the God Almighty. And even in choosing the language of God Almighty is really, really significant because that is the very same name that God has designated himself in Genesis 17 where he speaks to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. This almighty God is the covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises. And back in Genesis 17, what's happened? Well, Abraham still has no son. He was 99 and no children. And yet... The Almighty God, El Shaddai, he delivered, didn't he? He delivered. And in times of trial, we need to go back to God, to God Almighty. 
to who he is, we need to search through the scriptures. Who does this God reveal himself to be? What's he like? What does he say he will do? Because in a world of, of trials, and trials of various kinds, we need firm promises to cling to, don't we? We need firm promises to cling to because the tentative plans that we make, well, they're tossed to and fro, to and fro. And if our hope was in our plans, well, then we would be in deep, deep difficulty uh, this evening. But give thanks that we have a God who speaks. We have a God who speaks. He gives us his word and he also hears and he calls us to pray, to cast all of our cares upon him because he really does care for us. Look at the prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy. What a prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy. The third thing I want us to see in this chapter is that our minds can come up with all sorts of strange ideas of someone else's motives, and yet, and yet often, they are far from reality. Look at verse 15. So the men took the present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and may fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. As we think about this, we have to giggle, don't we? <laughs> because it's funny. It's funny. Here is the governor of all of Egypt. He's second in command. And remember, Egypt is, is the place of great wealth because they've got all the food and they're able to sell it to the whole world at this point. Remember, they'd been saving up and storing in barns and now they're selling it to everyone. And here's, here's the brothers. And they're thinking that Joseph is probably out to get a few more donkeys. <laughs> A few more donkeys, surely that's what he's at. And it's laughable, isn't it? And yet it seems that they convince themselves that this is the sort of thing that's going on. And I wonder if there's a really important lesson for us this evening. A lesson that reminds us that we can come up with, with all sorts of fanciful ideas and perceived motivations behind someone's actions, and sometimes we can convince ourselves that things are true when they are anything but true. In fact, if we were to take a, a cold look at some of the things that we've come to believe in terms of other people's motivations and what's driven them to do something, it's laughable. And yet we've convinced ourselves in our minds that it is true. And the sad thing is, how many friendships how many families, how many marriages, how many churches have fallen apart because of a perception, because of an idea that someone did X or someone did Y with a particular motivation, and people have convinced themselves that it was the case, and yet it was not true. Maybe a hunch that they said that in a particular way just to get at you, that the reason that they didn't text or didn't call, or the reason that they did text or did call was with a particular motivation of spite or intent to hurt or to mock or belittle. 
Oh, our minds can come up with some really twisted stuff, can't they? Sometimes it's maybe even surprising to us as just how twisted we could, we could let it work out. And perhaps all that we've been thinking is not true. It could all be wrong. That's certainly the case here, isn't it? They thought, Joseph, he plans to steal our donkeys. That's what he's at. And that was not his intent. The fourth thing to see is God's somewhat surprisingly rich provision for his people. The potential donkey-stealing motives had led the brothers to confess to the steward about the, the money in their sacks from the first journey. These men, they want to be really honest. They want to be really clear. They had not stolen it, and they were very, very, very prepared to pay for it once more now. But listen to the words of the steward, verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. How often do we hear that in the Bible? Your God and the God of your father have put treasure in your sacks. I received your money. Two things that I want us to see here. Firstly, notice that the steward attributes what has happened to God. And that's significant, isn't it? The steward of Joseph's house is likely to, be an, uh, to have been an Egyptian, someone who would have grown up worshiping all sorts of gods, and yet here he puts the provision down to their God and the God of their father. And you wonder if the steward, having worked up close to Joseph for some time, had spotted something different about this man Joseph, something different about this man Joseph, maybe how he lived, but not only had he spotted something different about this man, Joseph, but he had come to understand something about this man, Joseph's God. Perhaps he didn't just get to know Joseph. Perhaps he was starting to get to know something about the God he worshipped. I know that many of you are in work situations, and they're not unlike Joseph's. They're the kind of situation that well, you find yourself in a workplace where there are very, very, very few Christians. Very few people who seek to follow the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a, that's a difficult working environment to find yourself in. And there you'll need great wisdom from God in order to have clear lines that you do not cross, just like Joseph did. And you will need discernment in order to be distinctive and godly in what can often feel like the most foreign of lands. And yet, and yet as a Christian, you are salt and light. Salt and light, and, and who knows, who knows how God might choose to use you in that workplace or in that community. But secondly, notice that he attributes what has happened to God. And for the good listeners among you, you'll realize that's just exactly the same point, said exactly the same way. And yet I want us to think about something slightly different under the same point, because it would be tempting for us to say to ourselves, well, the steward here, he's saying that it was God who provided for you, but we know the truth. <laughs> we know that it was actually Joseph who gave the order, and we know that it was actually the steward who was the one who put the money back in the sacks. And so we can listen to what the steward says, oh, it was God who provided for you, and we can say, yes, it was God. We we know what you're saying, but it was actually Joseph. It was actually the steward. And yet, the steward here is 
very accurate. Very accurate in what he says because God uses means to bring about his decrees, doesn't he? And if we bring what we know from the letter of James about God, we know that all good gifts come from our heavenly Father. They come from our heavenly Father, don't they? Wasn't this the kind of good provision that God had brought about for this family? Good provision from their heavenly Father. The hand that moved Joseph to order the money to be placed there was God's hand. The hand that moved the steward to be obedient to Joseph, to place the money in the sacks, well, that was God's hand. And so, in a very real sense, it was God, the Almighty God, who had provided for them. He was indeed being merciful, wasn't he? I wonder if you think about your own life this evening. As you think about your own life, can you spot how God has been richly providing for you? Maybe surprisingly, as you look back over your life and you look back in the rearview mirror and you say, yes, God has richly provided for me. He has richly blessed me with more than I could have imagined. Rich gifts that come from God's hand. As we get to the end of the chapter, what do we see? Well, we see Joseph's care and his compassion as he invites all of his brothers to join him around his table. We see it again in how he asks about his father, their father. We see it in how he prays for his brother Benjamin in verse 29. He says, God be gracious to you, my son. We see it as he has to leave the room because he's overwhelmed with compassion and he needs somewhere to go and to weep and to cry. But we also see that Joseph is still testing his brothers, isn't he? Still testing his brothers. He still wants to know, has their hearts really changed? Has their hearts really changed from that day that they sold him into slavery? Because remember what, what had started off uh, the, um, the issues between Joseph and his brothers? Well, it was favoritism, wasn't it? It was that his father was showing him favoritism, and that made the brothers really jealous, really envious, and it made them really, really angry. And as a result, they hated him. Well, as the, the meal takes place, Joseph has all of the brothers arranged. He has them arranged to sit in the order of their age, something which causes the brothers to to look at each other in amazement and think, wow, that's strange. How did Joseph know? It's almost as if it was a little reminder to the brothers that they are indeed known, if by none other than God himself. And maybe that was an important thing for them to know, that they really were known, especially by God himself, because of the testing that they were about to face. And the first test that we see this evening, and we'll see the rest of the tests coming up in in Genesis 44, the first test is, how would they cope now with Benjamin being shown favoritism? Did you spot it? The portions are taken to the brothers from Joseph's table. We see that in verse 34. But Benjamin's portion, five times, as much as any of the others. Imagine being one of the brothers, you're there, you're thinking, wow, this is incredible, a great big feast is coming down, and you look down, you see your Yorkshire pudding, and then you look across and you see your brother, and he has five Yorkshire puddings. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel? Does it rekindle the rage that these brothers had once shown to their brother Joseph? 
Well, as we finish up this chapter, what we see is a, a change, don't we? We see the signs of change are there because rather than the writing telling us of the hatred towards their little brother, now that he's got five Yorkshire puddings and they've only got one, we are told that they drank and they were merry with him. No anger, no rage, no hatred this time. Why? Because God has been at work, hasn't he? God has been at work and he has been bringing about change. He did it then and he still does it now. And so there's hope for us this evening, there's hope for me, there's hope for you, that God will continue the work that he has started. That's what he will do. He'll continue the work that he has started. The sins that seem to have been such a consistent pattern within your life, well, they don't have to continue. That's good news, isn't it? Whatever it might be, whatever that consistent sin that seems to just niggle at your life and it seems to be a pattern that you just follow down the the road again and again and again, it doesn't have to continue. In fact, because of the spirit within us, we are able to fight the battle, aren't we? We're able to fight the battle. We're able to strive for holiness and purity, seeking the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This evening, Genesis 43 reminds us that we are not in control. But for the believer, we know that all that is brought to pass comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father, and those hands are good hands. And we know that even in the trials, they are not purposeless, but rather he has his good purpose in them. He knows what he's doing, and he's conforming us more and more to the image of Christ Jesus himself. Genesis 43 reminds us of the twistedness of our own minds and hearts, and how our perceptions can often be far from the truth, and so we need to keep them in check. But we've also been reminded of God's surprisingly rich provision. His surprisingly rich provision and how God, the God who saves us, the God who works to bring about our salvation, is also the God who works to bring about our sanctification. And so as we get to the end of Genesis 43, there is much to ponder, isn't there? Much to ponder. But as we step back and consider God's rich provision, Where do we see that provision more than in the provision of the Redeemer that we talked about? The Savior, Jesus Christ, our brother, our great high priest, who intercedes on our behalf. You see, we see a little shadow of it in this passage, don't we? We've seen that as the brothers left for Egypt, they knew that the only way that they could come to the face of Joseph, the governor, the prince, was that they were to come with their brother. That was their only hope. And for us this evening, we can only come before God the Father if we come with our brother. That is our only hope, Christ Jesus. Without him, we have no access to God the Father. But in him, we have forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin and a work that is taking place in us to cleanse us from sin. 
making us more and more in the likeness of our perfect brother, Christ Jesus. And so this evening, is that who you're putting your trust in? Jesus Christ. Are you humbly recognizing this evening that God is in control? And are you submitting your life to his providence and to his care? And are you seeing evidence? Are you seeing evidence of God's continual work in you, sanctifying you, so that you're becoming more and more like Christ Jesus? Well, that's our prayer, isn't it? That's our prayer. Let's pray. God Almighty, would you grant us mercy? Amen.